From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Welcome to the Friday edition of Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships, and it's our day to be together. I'm filling in for Tony Perkins. Before there was ever a term for it, my first guest, Andy Berger, was sex trafficked by all her immediate family members and extended family members her entire youth life. Today, and with God's grace, she's a healed woman and the founder of Beulah's Place, a ministry to homeless teens in Redmond, Oregon, that provides young people who have also been sexually abused with the help and hope they desperately need. Well, in my second segment, we discuss the jury verdict and the federal trial of Planned Parenthood Federation of America versus Center for Medical Progress. The case came to a close on Wednesday in San Francisco when the abortion giant sued CMP for undercover videos that David Daleiden had taken of Planned Parenthood officials admitting on camera to harvesting baby body parts in order to sell them to a company called Advanced Bioscience Resources. I'll talk in studio with Dr. Michael New, a visiting assistant professor at the Catholic University of America who testified for the pro-life heroes. At the bottom of the hour, the discredited Southern Poverty Law Center is back in the news after a year of scandals when top-level executives resigned over sexual harassment and racial discrimination claims. But working conditions are still so bad at the Poverty Palace that the employees have decided to unionize. The only problem? Management refuses to voluntarily recognize it. The SPLC union said, quote, management's refusal to voluntarily recognize our union and decision to hire a law firm that specializes in union avoidance strategies are counter to SPLC's values. The center cannot truly claim to support workers' rights while also hiring a union avoidance law firm to prevent its own workers from exercising our right, end quote. And at 42 past the hour, the evening news broadcasts of ABC, NBC, and CBS have, in case you haven't noticed, become increasingly hostile to President Trump since the beginning of the impeachment inquiry on September 24th. Out of 684 evaluative comments included in their broadcast, a whopping 96% have been negative. I'll talk with Adam Goulet, president of Accuracy in Media, for his analysis. As a reminder, and you know this already, go to TonyPerkins.com, our podcast website, where we have information on all of today's topics and guests. Follow Tony on Twitter at T. Perkins or me, if you'd care to, at Sarah P. Perry. Human trafficking in the U.S. is a $13 billion a year criminal enterprise. And in America, an alarming number of young people are targeted by human traffickers dealing in child prostitution, pedophilia, sex slavery, and porn. After the illegal drug trade, human trafficking is the second largest criminal enterprise in the nation. My first guest, Andy Berger, survived 17 years of sex trafficking by immediate and extended family members before the term was even called that, beginning at the age of six months to 17 years old. She's documented her story in a new book entitled A Fragile Thread of Hope, One Survivor's Quest to Rescue. 
Today, she's a healed woman with God's grace and the founder of Beulah's Place, a ministry to homeless teens in Redmond, Oregon, as she provides young people who have also been sexually abused with the help and resources they need. Andy, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Washington Watch. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much. Such an honor to be included in your program. Well, Andy, I have to tell you, your courage in coming forward and telling your story, not only for your own exorcism of your past, but also because it so ministers and heals young people who have been abused, really touches our heart here at FRC. But before you tell your story, I want to make clear that the abuse you suffered was so awful that at the age of 37, a wonderful Christian couple in their 70s legally adopted you. So when you reference your biological parents who abused you, you refer to them as your birth parents. Is that right? That is correct. Absolutely. Now, when you talk about being sex trafficked in your own family, and we cannot, those of you who are out there listening, conceive of what a situation this would be like because it was more than one family member. It has a connotation for some of an exchange of money for sexual abuse, but that wasn't the situation in your house, was it? No, uh, Sarah, like uh, in the 60s, you know, no one even hardly, t- probably never talked about it, but there wasn't a term, there wasn't a, a way to express it. And, and I'm sure if the people that hurt me had known they could make money off of it, they probably would have. But mm. here, here's my position is that when you knowingly take a child, transport them in a car or any other way to someone else in the family, and you know what that person is going to do to them sexually or otherwise, and you're the adult, they're the minor, to me that is trafficking. You have transported a child for sexual activity against their will. Mm. So that is my, my personal opinion. And, yes, we hear about the commercial side of it, the business side of it, in movies and in and news and such. But uh, at any rate, no child should ever be forced, coerced, or imprisoned to have sexual activity against their will, ever. So in your specific family, it wasn't just immediate family. It was also extended family. So who were the family members overall that sexually abused you? Uh, besides my birth mother, father, brother, uh, there was a female cousin, there was an uncle, and probably there's some fragmented memories of, of other people. Uh, it was such a long time ago, almost, you know, six decades uh, later, I have just not remembered every single circumstance. But in therapy and counseling, a lot came forward, and so the family was uh, just very, very evil in a lot of ways and so it it was just being put in a room putting in a dark place maybe a closet uh, people's hands around my throat whatever it took I was nothing I was an object to them I was not a human Oh, Andy, I, I'm. your story is so compelling, and there are so many parts of it that really hit you in that soft spot in your stomach where you think this cannot truly be a nonfiction story. But I do want to tell our listeners that one of the impacts that this story had on me was the fact that your mother actually justified her sexual abuse by holding her Bible and telling her that God told her to do it. So do you think that there was mental illness involved here? Because I can't conceive of any other explanation for that kind of horrendous action toward their own child. 
Well, as as anyone could take the Bible literally or manipulate it for their own reasons and purposes, there could have been some mental illness. I think a lot of people would like to see it that way. It's easier to tolerate while she was mentally ill. However, again, from my perspective, Sarah, if you're an adult and you are responsible for a child in any way, you are also responsible for their safety, their care, their protection. Uh, with my birth mother, uh, who was the primary sexual predator, uh, she she was very ritualistic, almost like an addict who had to do things to get it out of their system. But when questioned or when she would hold that Bible, that black Bible, do I tell you, it was like she had the voice of God, that she had to uh, not spare the rod and all of that kind of stuff. And she would use portions to her benefit. And I was a very small child. I'm a petite person, so just the sound of her voice would terrify me, let alone, you know, thinking God, you know, would hurt me, too. Well, and particularly because we know that who we are as children and our vision of who the Lord is is predominantly shaped by our parental influences in our lives. People have written about the fact that we have a tendency to associate the first authority figure that we have, our parents, with our understanding of who God is. So I can't imagine how difficult it was to make that connection. But you had finally had enough one day and you screamed at her to stop sexually abusing you how did she respond just by continuing to beat me and to use her fist against my head and my neck and my body any way she could because she just would get enraged and kind of like an adrenaline rush when somebody's just so angry, uh, which is why by the age of five, she often told me she could take me out at any time and that uh, she controlled me. And that's what caused me to try to take my own life at the age of five. At the age of five, this is kindergarten age, and you sat on a curb one day and just decided that you had had enough and you were going to throw yourself into oncoming traffic. But God has a funny way of keeping around the people for whom he has plans. What happened that day? As I sat on the curb, Sarah, there were no cars coming down our normally busy street that day. And I was just probably in my own way praying that there would just be an end to the horror, to the, the just the violations, the, the beatdowns, the, the humiliations, everything, just, you know, everything. I wanted it to stop, and I thought being dead would be at least give me peace, and I would never have to go back into that house or with those people again. You know, and then maybe somebody might miss me or ask questions. But as I was waiting, I looked into the sky, and it was so blue and so big, and I wondered, I wonder how far the sky goes and who made it? How did it get here? All these questions, and in my heart, my little five-year-old heart, I just felt and heard this voice saying, this is not the plan I have for you, and this is not the way, you know, basically to get out of it. And so for whatever reason, it must have calmed me enough because I went back up the driveway and leaned against the garage, and I said, I remember this clearly, if you keep me alive, I will do whatever you call me to do, probably not fully realizing the God part, but just knowing that, If somebody keeps me alive, I'll do whatever. And I didn't know it it would be such a long road and a painful road and a hurtful road, but I remember that clearly. And then God just kept affirming, keep moving, keep going forward, Mm -hmm. and that it wasn't him that caused this. It was the free will of people who chose to do evil instead of doing good. 
Oh, Andy, I have so many more questions, but I'm going to fast forward to Beulah's Place. You are the founder. Okay. It is out here. It's on the West Coast. And you you have placed young people between the ages of 18 and 21 in volunteers' homes. You have placed them who are only that certain age. The rest stay in the community house with you. Describe what's going on in these kids' lives when they come to you at Beulah's Place. Absolutely. When they reach out, when they call or they're referred, but uh, when they reach out to us, I immediately, within a few hours, try to respond, get to meet them, find out, so so why are you on the street? What's brought you here? What's happening in your life? And all of the kids we have worked with are on the streets because they're, that's a safer place for them than where they're running from. Now, does every teenager do that? No. There are some that choose, you know, the couch surfing life or choose to run away for other reasons, but the kids we rescue have absolutely no safe family or extended family member or friend that will help them, uh, protect them, you know, keep them on track. And so we're kind of both either the last stop or close to it by the time they reach out to us. Then what we do is figure out which safe house would be best for them. My husband and I have had at least 16 of these teams with us on and off over the years, and, and it's just a way to give them some stability. And at Beulah's house, you have also just bought a 1950s home with 4,000 square feet, and you are hoping to renovate it so you can feed and mentor 100 kids a day, including minors. I'm going to encourage our listeners to go to Beulahsplace.org. That's B-E-U-L-A-H-S Place.org. Consider giving a financial donation to help remodel their next project to minister to these kids. The book is A Fragile Thread of Hope, and our guest here in Washington Watch has been Andy Berger. Thank you so much for joining us today. Coming up next, a decision has just been released in the Planned Parenthood case against David DeLayden's group. Joining me next is Dr. Michael New, visiting assistant professor at Catholic University. Abortion is one of the most combative and sensitive moral and political questions in America today, even among Christians. There has been a renewed effort in theological liberal Christian circles to argue that the Bible does not oppose abortion. In light of these arguments, it is crucial for Christians to know what the Bible actually says about abortion. Does the Bible teach that life begins at conception or birth? Is abortion murder? In FRC's new publication titled, Biblical Principles for Pro-Life Engagement, Personhood, Scripture, and Church History, author David Clausen addresses these questions with relevant passages in the Bible that inform how a Christian should think about abortion, the question of personhood, and a survey of how prominent church leaders have interpreted these passages throughout history. Learn more by visiting frc.org slash unborn. That's frc.org slash unborn. Meadow Pollock was a high school senior who was tragically gunned down during the Parkland school shooting in Florida. In an emotional and gripping FRC speaker series event, her father, Andrew Pollock, and education expert Max Eden discussed the tragic massacre and the politically correct policies that allowed the Parkland shooting to happen. The Southern Poverty Law Center and the Obama administration promoted a false narrative that teachers and principals were racist and couldn't be trusted to enforce rules with consequences. Instead, they argued for healing circles and restorative justice. These policies enabled a psychopathic criminal to maintain a clean background and purchase a firearm used to murder 17 people at the high school. 
The Obama administration forced these leniency policies into hundreds of schools, serving millions of students across America. To listen to this event and to learn more, visit frc.org slash speakers. That's frc.org slash speakers. Religious liberty is one of the most important. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday edition. Well, there is a decision out in a San Francisco federal courtroom. You'll recall that the case of Planned Parenthood Federation of America versus Center for American Medical Progress, David Delighton's group, just wrapped up on Wednesday, and today the jury is out with a verdict. So joining me with his thoughts, who was a witness in that case, who was called to testify on behalf of those pro-life heroes, is Dr. Michael New, who is a visiting associate professor professor at Catholic University and often a guest on Washington Watch. Dr. New, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what is the decision in this particular case? Uh, This is disappointing. Uh, We did not get the verdict we wanted. Uh, the jury rolled against David and in favor of Planned Parenthood. So that was certainly a bad thing. And I don't think, I'm not sure the uh, damages are official yet, but the number I've seen online is they're holding David liable for over $870,000 in increased security fees and other damages uh, that Planned Parenthood, quote unquote, supposedly incurred as a result of his investigative reporting. So summarize for those who haven't been following this case, because mm-hmm. this is really an attenuated mm-hmm. litigation mm-hmm. process. It's been going on for a while. What was the summary here of the claim that Planned Parenthood filed against Delighton? Well, Planned Parenthood filed several claims against David. I mean, they argued he was guilty of trespassing. They argued he was guilty of illegally taping conversations, uh, and they said he should be held liable for things like additional security uh, for Planned Parenthood personnel who were uh, supposedly receiving threats. As a result of his videos, there was an instance where one employee, they said, uh, had to move uh, because she no longer felt comfortable uh, living in the, her current residence. So they said that because of increased security and other things, uh, David uh, and his company, the Center for Medical Progress, uh, should be held liable. And again, the jury uh, heard the testimony. And uh, again, sadly, they ruled against David today. Uh, and again, the term I've heard, I'm not sure if it's official, but he's going to be held liable for, uh, they said, $870,000 is what I heard. Mm. Now, you testified on November 5th Mm. as a witness for the defense, an expert witness on statistics in which you debunked the accuracy of the National Abortion Federation's numbers. So what specifically did you testify? Sure. Uh, The plaintiffs in the case tried to argue that uh, because of David's excellent undercover work, there was an increase in abortion clinic violence uh, as a result of these videos. And uh, there's a lot of problems uh, with the data they cited. They relied on data from NAF, uh, National Abortion Federation. And the problem with the NAF data, there's many problems with it, but the most important problem is that their data is purely self-reported. They contact abortion facilities who report different amounts of harassment or quote-unquote violence, and they mark them down. But there's no complete corroboration. You know, they don't necessarily link to police reports or media coverage or anything to fully corroborate all these instances of violence or harassment they state. So NAF is an advocacy group. They favor legal abortion. They support laws would make it more difficult or in some cases illegal for pro-lifers to pray or witness or sidewalk counsel. Mm-hmm. So, again, they have a real incentive to inflate the amount of, quote-unquote, violence or harassment at these clinics. And I just made the case that, you know, as a professional social scientist, one should not take that data all that seriously. 
So we understand that there were a couple of irregularities in the proceedings, one of which I understand was the fact that Judge Oreck himself had a connection to Planned Parenthood, but refused to recuse himself on the basis of conflict of interest, and also prevented Daleiden's counsel and counsel for the Center for Medical Progress from introducing anything based on a First Amendment claim to freedom of speech. Do you have any idea why he would have done that, other than to simply weight the scales of justice in favor of Planned Parenthood? You know, I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, obviously, this judge had connections to Planned Parenthood. It looks like he financially supported uh, either both directly or indirectly a Planned Parenthood facility in the past. That's obviously very troubling. And I think probably the most troubling aspect of the whole case to me is it's my understanding the jury didn't even get a chance to watch the undercover videos that David and his team produced. I mean, that's pretty central to the case. I think if the jury got a chance to see those videos, really saw the misconduct, really saw the callous way Planned Parenthood talked about trafficking and selling these baby body parts, that would have reflected uh, very negatively on Planned Parenthood and might have given us a different outcome. It just seems it's very central to the case, and those videos should have been viewed by the jury. How long was the case overall? Uh, it looks like that the jury heard about six weeks of testimony, and they only deliberated for two days. That doesn't seem like much time. No. I think that all, if you look at all the testimony they heard, you know, they should have spent more time in deliberation than they did uh, to arrive at the verdict that they did. So, And overall, we've mentioned previously Judge William Oreck. He was an Obama appointee, and he was in a leadership role at a San Francisco Family Resource Center. He helped open, run, and fund a Planned Parenthood clinic in partnership with this resource center. He and his wife donated significant financial resources to this partnership with Planned Parenthood. And his wife uses her husband's image on Facebook to support Planned Parenthood in posts attacking CMP's videos. So uh, the obvious conflict of interest here, to me, as a citizen, seems glaring. As a attorney, mm-hmm. it's absolutely unconscionable that this judge didn't recuse himself. So from the outset, it seems to me that this was a trial that was determined one way or the other from the outset to be in favor of Planned Parenthood Federation. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just obvious the judge had some real conflict of interest issues here. Uh, he should have recused himself. Uh, unfortunately, he did not. Uh, however, the one thing I'll say is this litigation is not over. I mean, they're, I don't know, I'm not privy to, you know, what David's legal counsel is thinking right now, but I can be pretty confident there will be appeals. So, again, I encourage all your listeners to keep David and his legal team uh, in your thoughts and prayers. Mm. Who were some of the other expert witnesses that were called to testify? Names that you recognized? I mean, there was a very good security expert. Uh, he also debunked the abortion statistics that were used. He actually looked at police reports and found that the when you look at police reports, the instance was much lower, and a lot of the abortion clinic violence or harassment was not ideological. Mm-hmm. He came across situations where somebody stole a wallet in an abortion clinic. Clearly, a situation like that isn't motivated by ideological opposition to sure. abortion. So, again, they had a very good team of experts uh, that went ahead and testified. Um, you know, again, they were pretty pleased with how the expert testimony went. Uh, decisions obviously very disappointing, uh, but as I've said before, this is not uh, not the end of it. Planned Parenthood Federation of America won an approximate $2.2 million verdict, but Daleiden's 
counsel has again indicated they will appeal, and we're hopeful that perhaps this version of the Ninth Circuit, after two new appointees, will be open to common sense and First Amendment defenses. Dr. Michael New, visiting associate professor at Catholic University of America, has been my guest today in Washington Watch. Coming up next, the Southern Poverty Law Center is back in the news. Not a scandal this time, unless you call slave wages a scandal. They won't recognize a new union by their employees. We'll be right back on Washington Watch. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry filling in on this Friday afternoon for Tony Perkins. Go to TonyPerkins.com for more information on today's guests and resources that will be helpful. TonyPerkins.com is the podcast website. Well, our friends over at the Southern Poverty Law Center are back in the news and once again, not for the right reasons. The totally discredited SPLC has now decided they will not voluntarily recognize a new employee union. Yes, you heard that right. An employee union, people unionize when they have determined that working conditions are such that they need the power of organized labor behind them. That's how bad things are at the SPLC. After a year, when top-level executives have resigned over sexual harassment and racial discrimination claims, the SPLC is once again back in the crosshairs. Management's refusal, they have quoted in their new union, to recognize voluntarily our union and decision to hire a law firm that specializes in union avoidance strategies, are counter to the SPLC's values. The center cannot truly claim to support workers' rights while also hiring a union avoidance law firm to prevent its own workers from exercising our right to collective bargaining, end quote. This from the newly organized SPLC Employees Union. I want to analyze a little bit about what's going on here. If you remember, this has been a year of distinct scandalous activity on behalf of the SPLC. And in fact, on March 13th, the organization fired Morris Dees, their founder and the organizer since 1971, who made millions busting up the Klan and who once was famous for having been quoted, cakes or causes, it's all the same. The former, a reference to his previous financial enterprise, one that he ran while he was in college of making birthday cakes and running a racket to line his pockets during the birthday months of all of his fellow students. Richard Cohen was fired on March 14th. He issued a public statement about Dee's departure and then shortly thereafter decided that he, too, was getting sufficient enough heat to resign. Rhonda Brownstein, SPLC legal director, then resigned the next day. Meredith Horton, deputy legal director, resigned thereafter. Bob Moser wrote a flaming expose in The New Yorker, calling it a highly profitable scam designed to bilk northern liberals out of millions of dollars. 
the chairman at the SPLC board, announced that Tina Chen, Obama, Michelle Obama's chief of staff, was going to be hired as the fixer to come in and perform an internal audit and to determine workplace culture changes that had to be made to this date. From March 26th, we have yet to see any public reporting, and I will wager you a nickel that we don't. The SPLC named Karen Bays Dunning as interim president, who is suddenly being identified as director of workplace culture management. Again, another interesting development. And just last week, Heidi Byrick, she of the Hate Watch intelligence blog, who spewed invective every day about what was wrong with America, resigned, saying she too had determined it was time to make a change. In less than a week, SPLC employees decided they would file for unionization. Now, this is an organization who twice had to perform an internal investigation into their own founder, Morris Dees, because of his proclivity for sexually inappropriate behavior. They used terms like plantation mentality. It was a top-down management approach in which employees of color and women were not allowed to advance. Indeed, the entire upper echelon of management was white and male. This, even though they have made millions, and in fact, at this point, their endowment stands at half a billion with a B dollars. They have preached social justice. They have preached equality, equity, fairness, and hate in order to stoke the flames of division, already licking at the heels of this 2020 election cycle. But hate pays, doesn't it? It pays handsomely. And the more you find a boogeyman in every corner, the more you tell people that the Klan is the same as American Family Association or D. James Kennedy Ministries or Samaritan's Purse or Family Research Council. The more money you get, the more you line the pockets of the candidates you want to elect, the more you change the culture for all of us. Well, I will say a leopard does not change its spots, nor does the SPLC change its modus operandi. Their first concern will be money. It will always be money. And hence, the SPLC at large has failed to voluntarily recognize the unionization of their supermajority of employees in 11 national offices. And why would they? You don't want to admit someone other than upper-level management has all the power. But don't take our word for it. Go to splcexposed.com. Find out what everyone from left-wing pundits to your American government has to say about the SPLC. Coming up next, we've got information on media bias. And if you don't think it exists... Just wait till we take a look at the most recent media glut of impeachment coverage. The news broadcasts for ABC, NBC, and CBS have become increasingly hostile to President Trump since the hearings began on September 24th. And here to break it down with me is Adam Goulet, president of Accuracy in Media, who provide us his analysis on just how bad it is. Coming up next on Washington Watch.
News. We can get it from many sources, but what can you trust these days? Where can you get news that doesn't make you as suspicious as you are informed? If you're looking for something better, for honest coverage of the latest news, one trusted news source I look to is the Washington Times. When preparing for the radio program and selecting guests to join me on the show, I will often read the Washington Times and have their reporters join me here on the program because I trust how they cover the news. Join me and more than 7 million readers who turn to the Washington Times every month to get real, trusted news. For a limited time, only listeners of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins will receive a special annual rate of $69.95 for the first year. Subscribe to the Washington Times and get this special offer by using my name and visiting WashingtonTimes.com slash Tony Perkins. That's WashingtonTimes.com slash Tony Perkins. Radical abortion laws in New York, Illinois, and Vermont are challenging the sanctity of life. These laws have lifted the few existing restrictions on abortion in the name of family planning and mental health of pregnant mothers. Americans need to take a stand and defend the rights of the unborn. Family Research Council is sending Congress 90,000 baby hats as a reminder that babies should be welcomed with love and warmth, not potential danger. Supporters have already funded over 45,000 hats. We are over halfway there. Join Americans across the nation and donate $9 to send a powerful reminder that young lives need to be cherished. When you take action, we'll send you an end birthday abortion certificate that will remind you to pray for born alive babies who are facing the danger of being killed outside the womb. Visit endbirthdayabortion.com for more information. That's endbirthdayabortion.com. Hello, this is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council. Welcome back to Washington Watch on this Friday afternoon. I'm Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships here at FRC. I'm filling in for Tony Perkins. And today we will talk in our last segment about media bias. Yes, there is bias. Does that take you by surprise? Because it doesn't for us here. We live it and we see it every day in our own news coverage. But with virtually no chance, Senate Republicans are going to vote to remove President Trump from office. After the impeachment hearings began on September 24th, House Democrats basically are pushing a drive more likely aimed at creating a deluge of negative headlines, hoping to hobble the Trump campaign going into the 2020 election. Now, if that's their goal, then the three major media broadcast networks are doing a bang-up job. Since 2017, the coverage of President Trump and his administration by the ABC, CBS, and NBC evening newscasts has been overwhelmingly negative. Following the beginning of the impeachment inquiry on September 24th, this coverage has been even more hostile than normal. Media Research Center just released the following statistics that out of 684 evaluative comments included in these broadcasts about President Trump and the impeachment hearings, a whopping 96% have been negative. A meager 4% have been positive. The media's tone and reporting has been bombastic and shameless. How much so, you ask? Well, enough that my 10-year-old looked at me the other day while we watched the evening news, as we often do, and said, Mom, they don't like the president very much, do they? 
By the way, the methodology of determining the spin of news coverage, the analysts tallied all explicitly evaluative statements from the MRC study about the president or his administration from either reporters, anchors, or nonpartisan sources such as experts or voters. Evaluations from partisan sources as well as neutral statements were not included. Now, joining me with his analysis is Adam Gwillette, president of Accuracy in Media, for whom we rely quite often on the truth of what's going on in the media. Adam, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thank you so very much for having me. So, Adam, I had the pleasure of watching you on C-SPAN recently and uh, appreciated your coverage of precisely what is going on in the media these days. I would imagine that you don't have much spare time when you are facing media coverage of the impeachment hearings. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about accuracy in media and what it does. Sure. Accuracy in media was founded exactly 50 years ago to expose the biased media. Back then, as you pointed out, there were three networks. People trusted Walter Cronkite. People trusted The New York Times. And we spent decades using investigative journalism and citizen activism to create a healthy skepticism towards the media. Now we're in a dramatically different media landscape. It's incredibly uh, fragmented. We've got never-ending access to information, but we're endlessly overwhelmed by misinformation, so that's where we come in. Now, your sister organization, Accuracy in Academia, is one of my favorite sites as well for instances of bias and free speech suppression on college campuses across the country. I also encourage our listeners to visit Accuracy in Academia for all things educational. But let's go back first to bias in the media here. We know the mainstream media wanted Hillary Clinton to win the 2016 election. But the fact that 96% of evening newscasts have been negative about Trump since the impeachment hearing began is really a quote that's extremely revealing. What does it say to you if 96% of what we consume, those major media networks, the evening news, if 96% of it is negative. Is there really any hope for unbiased coverage about what's going on right now on the Hill? Well, with all of those major networks and with MSNBC and CNN, they're chasing what's called the Trump bump. They're in a a time of declining ratings because the audience is incredibly fragmented. So now they're actually reporting stories even they know not to be true simply because they know there's a a solid audience of people who are desperate to watch or read anti-Trump content, regardless of whether or not it's accurate. So instead of reporting on the news, instead of reporting what's going on in our world, they're looking at that base and they're trying to make the most ridiculously anti-Trump stuff they've got because they know that there's an audience that they could sell it to. Well, and right along with that point, it seems that the ratings are tanking in part because people are finding these impeachment hearings to be tremendously boring. And as Jim Jordan has called out, the people who are approaching as star witnesses really have very little to say. I mean, it continues to be a big nothing burger. So I would imagine the fact that we're all bored of hearing a lot of nothing indicates that there's some double incentive, isn't there, to sort of color the narrative of what they're presenting. So 
This Trump bump, I would imagine, only promises to get bigger in the next 12 months. Is, is that something with which you at AIM agree? Yeah, that's exactly right. In a 24-hour news cycle, they've got to give you a reason to tune in. So they hype up these stories as if there's something there to try to get you to watch even when there's nothing there. But admittedly, for me, I find the MSNBCs and the New York Times' far less dangerous than a lot of the new media news sites on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. Sites like BuzzFeed and now this built their audience with puppy videos and with lists. So people didn't sign up for politics. When you tune into MSNBC, you expect to get left-wing politics. But BuzzFeed and now this, once they built up an audience of millions of followers, started launching anti-Trump propaganda that was so biased, even CNN has called them out for it. And these are largely viewed by young people who are easier to persuade. And again, these were people who didn't necessarily sign up looking for left-wing content like an MSNBC viewer might. Well, and of course, some of us who are not fully versed on the statistics surrounding obvious bias in media reporting, and for those who remain yet skeptical of the fact that there's even any bias at all, I'll give an example here between the three major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC. Since the beginning of the House inquiry on September 24th, the evening newscasts from these three networks have churned out almost 400 minutes of coverage to the Ukrainian scandal. Now, this is only three networks, and their entire broadcast is 30 minutes with two-minute multiple commercial breaks. So you're talking about maybe 20 minutes per weekday night, and they have still managed till September 24th to now to turn out nearly 400 minutes of the Ukraine scandal, which is three-fifths of all administration news during a period of 645 minutes. It's they're driving so conclusively home simply by repetition. You know, I'm, I'm hearkening back to some of the easiest mnemonics that I ever used in school to remember things right on a geology test or a history test. And the more you repeat something, the easier it is. To believe. So without organizations like AIM, we find ourselves thinking, well, this has to be a problem. After all, it's driving most of the news right now. It practically matches the 438 minutes of airtime any of those three produced during the most hyper-intensive six weeks of the Russia collusion, air quotes, scandal. Now, I say that because they've ratcheted up on something that is even less conclusive. We're still looking for that needle in a haystack, that democratic silver bullet. So they're actually picking up steam. Do you think this is because we've sort of cycled over into the earnest campaign year for the 2020 elections? I mean, it's hard to say, but I'm sure just any day now they're going to break out and investigate the story as to why Joe Biden's son was getting $60,000 a year to be on that board to begin with. How is that entirely ignored by all of the media? You could certainly cover the Trump impeachment hearings. I would expect that. It's a major story. Maybe they can cover it more fairly. Maybe it doesn't deserve this much attention. But at what point are they at least going to ask the question, we've got a major presidential contender whose son was getting paid $60,000 a month to be on an energy company board in Ukraine. What the heck was happening there? And were they just trying to bribe access to a vice president or to a potential former president? Totally missed is that story. We don't see it at all.
Right. <laughs> Which, to me, boy, that sounds like it's a compelling news hook, but what do I know, yeah. right? So we've also got this problem of secret sources, right? So we've got TV newscasts and the development of their programming that takes place behind closed doors. So the majority of the impeachment coverage for these networks has been based on secret leaks from anonymous sources. Adam, I don't feel like this is a service to the American viewers when we're dealing with anonymous sources and closed-door production meetings. This looks like you're trying to develop some kind of a Hollywood thriller and you don't want to give away the plot line. Well, I mean, it looks like creative situations where... I'm quoting an anonymous friend of an anonymous friend of an anonymous friend. That never used to pass for journalism. Random hearsay and rumors were not journalism. It was quite the opposite of journalism. But again, now they've abandoned objective journalism in an effort to chase the Trump bump. So anything that they can grab onto that will be appealing to those anti-Trumpers, the the, the people who've got Trump arrangement system, anything they've got. A great contrast here in terms of just quantity of time and the percentage of coverage here. So when POTUS took out the world's most dangerous terrorist, ISIS leader al-Baghdadi, the successful U.S. mission that led to the death of the ISIS leader only warranted 45 minutes before it faded from newscasts, which I don't know. I seem I seem to think that that would have been a highly compelling story and something that ought to as an American nation, have brought us together with the encouragement that we have truly made progress on the war on terror. That is something that needs to be celebrated in a divisive American landscape. But again, I digress. So the media beats Trump up over this U.S. military triumph. So what was a victory? They color to look like something else. What was that? It's exactly what we'd expect. And perhaps the most outrageous thing when that guy was uh, taken out was the Washington Post headline. For anybody who missed it, you know, you've got a pretty straightforward story. Terrible ISIS leader, a terrorist, the most dangerous terrorist. He's killed. You could write it. This is a victory for Trump. You could write it not mentioning Trump and credit our military. Washington Post wrote, austere religious scholar is killed. And they (laughs) made this guy seem like he was a... He was a swell, wonderful religious person. Why would a nice religious guy get killed? (laughs) We're all for religious people. I mean, my gosh, they should have been doing PR for ISIS. It's unbelievable. No, I I find it absolutely incredible. And the headline was eventually changed, but not before the Washington Compost had egg on its face because it was such an obvious mischaracterization of who this terrorist was. So... The three major networks actually changed it twice. They put a pretty fair uh, headline initially, and then they got a a tremendous amount of backlash from the anti-Trump base. Then they changed (laughs) it to the ridiculous headline. And then a million common sense people said, what the heck are you doing? And they became the laughing stock of the journalistic world for a day. And then they changed it a second time to a headline kind of down the middle. But it was a great reminder that, hey, they're just trying to appease that base. They don't care about journalism. They want to make those anti-Trumpers happy. So it was no surprise that they were quick to back down to the anti-Trump crowd. The impeachment coverage by the three major networks that we've been talking about have uh, diverted airtime from 2020 Democrats, which is perhaps a little bit of a silver lining in the clouds, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I'm sure we're going to see plenty of coverage for the 2020 Democrats. And one of my favorite instances of it, Marie Claire, 
did a profile on all the powerful female operatives working on the 2020 campaigns. They're still focused <laughs> on the 2020 campaign. And, you know, obviously I understand Marie Claire can't talk to every woman on every campaign. There's a, still a lot of Democrats, and if you if you pull it on 1%, they're not necessarily going to profile the women in your campaign. So they, they profiled a lot of campaigns. One campaign they didn't profile was Trump's. They didn't identify a single female <laughs> right. staffer on the Trump campaign. They only focused on the Democrats as if they're running unopposed in the general election. You know, I find it interesting also that the three networks have been practically mum about the economic su- success of the Trump administration and that issue of the economy, you know, to uh, quote my favorite Cajun, who happens to be a Democrat as opposed to a Republican, it's the economy, stupid, when... He worked for Clinton. We understand that dollars drive voters to a large extent, and yet the networks say nothing about the economic success of the Trump administration. Once again, not really a surprise, is it, Adam? No, there are stories that they care about depending on whose administration is in office at the time. As soon as a Democrat becomes, uh, as soon as Obama comes into office, Cindy Sheehan is no longer a story. Code Pink is no longer a story. People getting killed and civilians dying when our drones take people out, no longer a story. Republican in the White House, oh my gosh, look what happened. It's as if the anti-war protesters just up and disappeared as soon as Obama was elected and remained in hiding until, you know, a Republican like Trump took over the White House. They've got angles and narratives, and it's just that they're looking to play Mad Libs and fill in the blanks with the people they dislike, and there's times where they can use it times where they can't. Adam Goulet, presidency of accurate, president of accuracy in media. And the website is AIM.org, the sister organization. Again, for those of you who, like me, follow education and higher ed specifically, accuracy in academia. Thanks for the good work that you do, Adam. Appreciate having you on Washington Watch. You have been listening to Washington Watch on this Friday afternoon. I've been sitting in for Tony Perkins. I'm Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships here. Go to TonyPerkins.com for resources and information about today's guests and topics. Be sure to share on your platforms. And we'll see you next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is powered by the Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 